From the White Letter Production Studios in Los Angeles, California, I'm Ellie Unger-Sargon. I'm Jeff Helmreich. And this is Four Cubits. I'd like to thank Chaim Singer-Franks for our awesome logo. You rock, Chaim. Welcome back to Four Cubits. I'm sitting here, as always, with my co-host, Jeff Helmreich. Jeff, how's it going? Great. Great to be back. Yeah, you had a good Shavuos? I did have a good Shavuos. Um, how could I not? It's about staying up all night drinking coffee and schmoozing. <laughs> it's like this show, but for an entire night. And that laugh <laughs> that you're hearing is uh, from Rabbi Sarah Zachariah, otherwise known, affectionately known as Rabbi Z, a good friend of mine. I'm really pleased to have you on Four Cubits today. Welcome. I'm really excited to be here. Great to uh, have you. Um, so... I think what we should do is start off by introducing our audience to Rabbi Z. Um, and I thought I would go through and look at your career, but then I had a second thought, which is you could probably do it better justice than I could by <laughs> gathering things from different corners of the internet. So why don't you uh, introduce yourself to our audience? Well, let's talk about some, I'll talk about myself in some relevant uh, forms, which is um, I was brought up in the Haredi community of Brooklyn, New York. I left that I I left that community Litvak black hat um, yeshivish um, I left that world in my mid twenties um, circuitously hanging out not not religious at all totally secular finding my way back into the Jewish conversation through the reform movement um, ending up getting smicha from the conservative movement and perhaps considering myself someplace between the conservative movement and post-denominational. So you've really, uh, your life experience has taken you to different denominations. And um, this is one of the reasons I wanted to have you on uh, for this episode. We are on our third episode about women in Judaism. I, I imagine we could do another three or another 30. <laughs> but um, so far, the conversation has largely focused on people who are in the Orthodox world or with one foot in the Orthodox world and one foot out of the Orthodox world. And um, that's my background to a large extent. Um, I think Jeff... It's my familiarity too. And I thought that that was where the controversy lies on this topic. But the more I learn, the more I realize it's all over. It's, it's, it's not as if conservative Judaism has completely liberated itself from these issues. Yeah, and um, my access point to that side of this conversation comes actually from Rabbi Z. Um, and yeah, why don't we get into it? Um, you know, growing up Orthodox, what you think about or what I thought about the conservative and reform movements was that they had liberated women. Women counted in a minion. Women could be rabbis. Um, I've learned from you that it's not quite as simple and rosy as that, is it? Not at all. So the conservative movement. Well, you know, if you go on the internet, um, you'll see that um, Rabbi Barmesh um, just wrote a tshuva, a conservative um, halachic responsa on women's obligation to do mitzvot because she was asked that question um, from the conservative um, standards for, you know, for Jewish law. And um, she makes an argument that women should be, um, should be mechuyav, should be obligated in all mitzvot, um, just as a man, because, right, because if she's, if there's an egalitarian community, which I'm not sure, I'm not so sure, like you said, I'm not so sure, so sure that that's that reality, um, that she came up with the reasons why women should be obligated, um, which is a 
complicated, a complicated response, right? Because you have JTS. When JTS started to admit women in the, the mid-80s, um, all the women needed to wear talisman to fill in, no questions asked. If you wanted to be in the, in the movement, if you wanted to be a rabbi, you needed to model and be just like a, a man. And uh, just some background for our listeners, JTS, the Jewish Theological Seminary, it's one of the main conservative seminaries in the United States. And when I went to Ziegler, all right, um, at that time, the dean, um, Rabbi Danny Gordis, you know, said that women had the choice. So he was already seeing something beyond this model of a woman needed to do that. And the reality is when you walk into a synagogue, right, when I go to Beth Am in the morning, you have some men who are wearing tefillin, and Talis, and some men who aren't, and some women who are, and some women who, who aren't, right? Who are and who aren't. So there's like a mixture of, you know, even within the pews, right? That who, you know, who's, uh, who's wearing Talis and Tefillin anyway. And right? just another piece of background, Ziegler is the West Coast conservative seminary, another one of the main seminaries in the United States. And uh, Danny Gordis, this was pre-crazy Danny Gordis. This was Danny Gordis <laughs> before he lost his mind and went to Israel, Danny Gordis, right? Is that, right. are we talking, yes. are we on the same yes. page about that, right? Yes, yes. <laughs> you say that the the tshuva concluded that women should be obligated, and that sounds odd to me. I think to myself, well, either they're obligated or they're not. It's really more of a factual question than a normative one. I mean, to investigate whether they are obligated. Uh, it seems interesting to that we can decide whether they ought to be obligated. I mean, I think she's saying they are, they are, I mean... Turns I out that, that they are, in fact. Right, and are, see. in fact, in an egalitarian, right? I mean, it's it's complicated, right? Because it's based on binary gender, you know, it, it's based on, you know, things that we are, uh, our communities are beyond that, right? Because we don't, you know, we try not to um, just say that, you know, it's all about the gender and it's X, you know, either... XY or XX and that's all it is and that's what that what you know that's what constitutes your obligation um, or your voice of commandedness right so it has to go beyond that because our because our communities are are filled with different types of people sexual orientation uncomfortable about with gender um, assignment and things like that so when you have a community of people you know, filling the pews like that. How do you respond and how do you educate and how you do you understand? But I think that what my understanding is, again, I'm an outsider here because I was not brought up in USY and I was not brought up in Ramah, but that there is a, a clear distinction in both of those, the youth group of the conservative movement and the camping system of the conservative movement. The men, the boys have, at 13 and beyond have to even if they never do it during the rest of the year, they have to, for those four weeks, six weeks, eight weeks, whatever they're at camp, they have to be wearing talus and tefillin, or at least tefillin, right, with tzitzit, arba kanfot, or, or however they, four corners, uh, or four cubits, <laughs> um, four corners, um, and then the girls do not. Do not. So it, it, you know, so all of a sudden you have girls in each of the generations, right, who have no women models, right? How do you, how do you even educate them, right, when their mothers or their sisters or their aunts or their grandmothers are not wearing it, only their fathers and their brothers are? So what, what does that mean? How do you, you know, so I think it, it raises the question that, you know, there has to be now a generation, perhaps, I'm not sure I agree, 
of obligating women to do that as a way of you know teaching that's very interesting so it's it, in a way what you're challenging is the dichotomy between either they're obligated or they can just have it you know and and it's and they're free to use it if they want and you're suggesting no it doesn't really work that way that if if we don't obligate them at certain stages we really are depriving them of it because they won't learn to do it it's yeah i think it's one uh, choice it's not necessarily the choice but we have to like i think we have to explore that yeah. right right because if you you know um it makes total sense if i didn't have to put on film at certain times growing up or tell us for all practical purposes i wouldn't have the practice it's not like it would be a pure abstraction that in theory i can do it if we're not if we don't go through the stages of training with it we don't yeah i mean and i think rabbi z is pointing to a pragmatic side of a point that batya raised in our last episode which is um, in this particular context, the context of the Jewish uh, legalistic tradition, you count by being obligated, um, right? So Batya put it that way, and I know you took exception to that. <laughs> but that's more than what it is. just it, said. No, no, it is. She probably agrees with that, but it's more than what she said. <laughs> well, we'll, so we'll, we'll hear from Rabbi Z in a second. I just want to finish this point, which is that um, uh, whether or not you accept it in quite such stark terms, the pragmatic reality of it is that the way it functions is that if you don't see yourself as obligated, or if you don't see this part of the community as obligated, the practice doesn't take hold. And so, But having said that, I want to get Rabbi Z's take on this, this particular question. So rephrase the question again for so me. I apologize. Do you believe that in the Jewish tradition, being obligated is, is the same as counting on some level? Yeah, I think so, sure. Right, you obligate, right, if you are a shali, right, the reason why you're able to lead a, a minyan is because you yourself are a member of that minyan, right? Women can lead minyan in a conservative, in the conservative movement. I'm not talking about the reform movement because they're outside of halachic framework, and I want to, you know, we can talk a little bit about, you know, is conservative movement really halachic, right? Um because they see themselves at least from the you know from the ivory tower position and from the the you know from their um, the way that they frame their halachic approach is like for, for real. So yeah, I mean, women. The reason why women needed to be counted was they were going to be cantors and rabbis, and that they were going to stand in front of the you know in front of the congregation, and they were going to lead the congregation. Right, so yeah, they needed to be counted because if not, you're just leading the you're like, you know, especially in the halachic framework that you're saying, you don't count. If you don't count, you can't be my agent. Yeah, so I think Rabbi uh, Z is agreeing with Batya and me from <laughs> on this point, Jeff. I well, think I, you're I, alone I, on this I, one. I hadn't, I hadn't actually expressed any disagreement with that point. Oh, okay. So, so clarify, please. What, what, what was uh, I, contentious I, about last time? God. Um, <laughs> Too many so weeks. I, the, I mean, I, so I, I don't think, I, I, I don't know. I think not counting, not counting women in a minion is deplorable. Whether you're orthodox, conservative, or reform, I, I don't see any reason to try, uh, to try to resist that. But I, I do think that we can take this point, like many points, a little too far. Um, to say you aren't obligated in Judaism, I think, does boil down to you're not counted because Judaism is primarily. I mean, it's a religion, and religions have it's a very important component of being participant in religion that you are bound by what you take to be a, a religious authority. 
It's not everybody's view of what's important in religion. Some people think it's a way of spiritual fulfillment. It's a way, but I think uh, an important part of, of a religion is contrasted with a sort of uh, feel-good movement or a new age uh, new age um, vocation, uh, new age hobby or something. Is that you feel bound to do what you ought to do as distinct from what you want to do, what you find fulfilling to do, what you'd like to do, or even what spiritually uplifting to do. All that's on one side, and what you should do is on the other side. And the whole point of religion is you're going on that side. And so if you if, there, if you take away the should from a whole class of people, you're out. They're out. Uh, you know, in a, in a, and I think that's very important. But I and you accept I, that that's a structural problem with yeah. rabbinic Judaism. No. Um, so. I think where where we disagree is 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 maybe we disagree is I don't think that every obligation must be had by everybody for them to be counting in the religion. Uh, so I don't have certain obligations that Kohanes that priests have, but that's a specific obligation. It's not you are not obligated by Judaism. It's you are not obligated to do these particular things. Um, you know, I, I think when you want to say that a certain practice says something about you, it's often wise to see, does the practice really say that about you? Um, not counting in a minion is a, very, is a very strong case for saying that about you. Not being able to do certain particular rituals or activities, we could read in that it says something about you not counting, but I don't know that that's the most faithful reading in every case. And so I think we should relax this idea that, that, that everybody has to have every obligation or else they don't count in the religion. Well, I, I don't think anyone's saying that, but I do think um, we are brushing no, no. on the topic that we discussed earlier, which is this concept of time-bound commandments, mitzvot asesh man grama. Ah, okay. that so in that is halacha, a, subset, a subset of religious obligations in Judaism. Right, and it just okay. so happens that, like this, those of that this subset excludes this group from public Jewish life, basically, or counting public <laughs> Jewish life. I mean, it's just accidentally so, right? I so, don't know what that means. I mean, uh, 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 people like uh, Rabbanit Henkin are, are major public figures in Jewish life, and they don't do a lot of these Okay, public ritual life. So leading a service or being called to the Torah no, but you or can lead a service. counting in a minion or being a witness. Right. Well, that's a slightly separate thing from the mitzvot asesha's mangrama, but a woman's not allowed to be a witness in Jewish law, for example, not trustworthy. Is a witness an obligation? I understand. There are there are legal contexts in which <laughs> being a witness is an obligation. Um, that's not, I mean, no, we're changing I, the. Yes, okay. you're right. I I am connecting some dots here, but the 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 bottom line is I'm 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 reaching for empirical cases to demonstrate that there is a a, a structural patriarchal bias in rabbinic Judaism that's kind of built into the system. Before we get into that, does conservative Judaism also bar women from being witnesses? So on the bottom the bottom line, yeah. Women can't be witnesses in conservative Judaism. I mean... They can be rabbis, but they can't be witnesses. They can't, right, so it depends on, on how you understand that. It, it really is, is up to each individual, right? So you have the Maradatra model, right? So each rabbi... Um, decides for his or herself who they're going to accept as a as a witness, but there are people who will not accept women as witnesses, like serve on a Beit Din for conversion, sign a ketubah, those kind of things. But a lot of a lot of um, rabbis in the conservative movement do accept women to sit on a Beit Din or to to sign a ketubah. Or things like that. So, so I, I want to come back to this, but I, I do want 
Rabbi Z, if you could share with us, I have a very simple question about the conservative movement that I'm, I was hoping you could answer here, which I think is really important. And it's funny because I really feel like you need to talk somebody to somebody else who really is a bucky on the conservative movement. Sorry. <laughs> it's okay. We have you representing an entire movement, an entire yes. gender. Yes. And, <laughs> and yet you have probably the most unique experiences of anyone, the, the least boxable of any person, and yet right. here you are representing all the boxes. <laughs> but so, here's my question. Okay. It's a very simple question. Okay. What went wrong? The conservative movement was supposed to bring, you know, a, a sort of equality to women. Most conservative synagogues don't have a mechitza anymore. The answer to your question is change goes really, really slow, and there's a lot of resistance to change, you know. And it depends on where you are, because there are still several conservative synagogues who affiliate conservative who still do not count women in, in a minyan. Um, so you have that still alive and well in the conservative movement. Does it represent all of the conservative movement? No, but there is a small um, faction of the, you know, of the of the community that don't accept women at all. So, you know, I want to say change is really slow. People are very uncomfortable with, you know, doing anything radical, quick, fast. Um, and they think, right, that they gave, right, that, wow, women could be rabbis now, and women can be cantors now, and women can do all sorts of things, and she can be counted, and she can take on, you know, obligations as she feels, you know, the need and, and the necessity, right? She does have the freedom of choice to do that, right? So one could say, wow, that's amazing, but still, and this is like, I don't know if it's mores, you know, social mores or community. But when I, you know, it still feels to me that it's not equal. There's still things within the movement that, you know, that when you look, you know, I walk around, say, JTS or, or AJU and the pictures on the wall are all men. You know, the names are all men. And yes, women have only been ordained, you know, in, in the movements, you know, in the reform movements since the 70s and, the, and um, in the conservative movements since the 80s. Um, and now we're in, you know, what is it, 30 years later, 35 years later, you know, it's, there's, you know, you have 2,000 years of schlepping, you know, women being in the balcony and behind the mechitza not having anything. And in the, even 50 years, say it's 50 years, right? You know, people still want to hold on to the old ways. It's hard for them. And a reason, you know, and I look at the Orthodox community and open orthodoxy and things like that, and I say it's not enough, right? It's, it's not, you know, for me, it's not enough. Why aren't the women, you know, pushing harder and doing more and, you know, and, you know, so, and I, you know, and I see, you know, I see from that perspective how slow, right, how slow it feels. And we have no control over that, right? We're in historic times right now in one important sense, which is that these days we can make the synagogues, the religious ritual life, the communities that we want. Uh, it's, it didn't used to be that way, mm -hmm. but there's an independent Mignon movement. Uh, things are really moving to a much more, David Myers puts it, it's a consumer-driven Judaism, Jewish practice today. So I feel if you have a desire to have a more egalitarian service, why work within structures that seem backward, whether it's Orthodox, this traditional rabbinic Judaism, or Orthodox Judaism, or Halachic Judaism, or rabbinic conservative? Let's go out and make from scratch the right, the kind of community we want. Why change existing movements? What 
is, is what's the reason to stay with to get that movement to change rather than to just leave and make our own so um to answer your question jeff i want to say that people rights people are very comfortable where they are it's very hard Come on, we, we know that. It's very hard to say, I'm going to break it all apart. I mean, the independent minyan is breaking it apart, even though the CDOR structure is the same, you know, whatever. You have the renewal or the, you know, or the reconstructionist who changed God language and has all sorts of innovations in the way they, they daven, um, the way they pray, right? So, so there are movements like pushing against it, but... You know, it's hard to, like, break an over 2,000-year tradition of, you know, of a structure of prayer and community. I mean, it's just, you know, it's our Jungian, it's in our Jungian consciousness. It's like it, it exists, it's imprinted on us from a, from a deep, you know, from a deep place. So, um, you know, um, I think that, um, I think it's hard to do. And just to make a claim is that I belong to the, you know, to the independent minyan that I belong to because it is totally egalitarian, non-hierarchical, no kohen, no levi, no duchening. You know, everybody is the same. Everybody has access. If you want to daven from the amud, you know, there are people who will teach you, right? There's no, you know, there's no question. You want to lane, you want to, you know, give a no Torah, Torah, no rabbi. You know, Full disclosure, I go there too. You know, <laughs> all right. And when Ellie, I mean, Ellie sometimes goes as well, you know, so um, this is where we all met. But I'm just saying there are places like that. Yeah. For me, that's the most comfortable for me. The structures are very traditional, but it's, you know, for me, it's very intentional. It's mindful. It, you know, it uses music even without instruments in a very, very deep way, you know. And, and for me, it's my spiritual plug-in right after a really you know whatever long week or whatever's going on so but i choose to go there because of the way it's structured right or it's anti-structure however we all want to understand it it's you know like so it has right it has tradition in it but it breaks everything else right all the other confinements of uh, of a traditional community but that's what's what's interesting is that normally, uh, when you have a movement for equality, they're looking for rights, privileges, and opportunities that they don't previously have. The minority, the subjugated group, is looking to have the opportunity to do X or their privilege to do Y. We now have a situation in Judaism, thank God, where women do have the opportunity to be rabbis and to be an egalitarian, minyanim, if they choose. Where they don't have this opportunity is within traditional movements. And so what some of these women are seeking, what whole, like the feminist North Orthodox movement, like many in the conservative movement, they're not seeking the opportunity to do certain things, to be first-class citizens as women. They're seeking to have that opportunity within a particular movement, within conservative Judaism. They don't just want to be rabbis, to be equal, to be teachers, to be... They want to be equal in, in, in movements that carry the flag and banner of conservative, if that's the movement, or, or even still increasingly orthodox. They want to... So it's not that they want the opportunity to daven or to lane or to count a minion. They want the opportunity to count in what will still call itself an orthodox minion or what will still call itself a conservative minion. And this campaign needs to be distinguished from a straightforward campaign for equality. And I wonder why even pursue that campaign. Why not just do like you did? You know, and you're explaining it diagnostically, like this is just the way people are. But is there a normative reason? Is there a reason why they ought to go into conservative? 
let's not just give women the rights and equality in a new Judaism. Let's make conservative Judaism incorporate women and still call itself conservative Judaism and still be a continuous with the previous conservative Judaism. Is there a reason to do that? Or Orthodox Judaism? I don't know. I'm just asking. I mean, I, one of the statements, you know, one of the, I don't know, banners of uh, the conservative movement is tradition and change. That in their movement, it's hala, you know, they see themselves as halachic within that halachic framework that they have the ability to be authentically traditional and within that authenticity that they're also able to innovate, be creative, and change. So to be able to say, yes, it's traditional on a certain level, but it's now open to, you know, everything's open to women, to the gay community, right? You can now be openly gay. Um, That's a recent know, development, right? Right, in the, in, the, in, the, in the rabbinic institutions in the conservative movement. You know, it was, you know, in, in the Reconstructionist and in the Reform, um, from the, you know, as soon as, you know, they were aware, you know, that became the norm for conservative Judaism. It wasn't, Slow. It was slow. It's much, that's what I'm keep on saying, it's much slower. And not transgender, by the way, just gay at this point, right? I mean, transgender is not... Right, I don't, I, I don't know. I don't know the, the particulars or the, you know, the yes. details of that. So I have um, sources close to the matter who tell me that transgender Jews are not as um, embraced with uh, open arms as gay Jews at this point in the conservative seminaries. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to paint a slightly depressing picture, and I want you both, if you choose to, to talk me off the ledge on this one. <laughs> because I've, what, what's emerging to me from these conversations um, is somewhat depressing uh, from a particular vantage point, uh, and, and it's this. Um, the Reconstructionist and Reform movements do not seem to have serious problems with women, integrating women, counting women, um, this doesn't seem to be, they seem to have licked it. Um, and what I'm starting to think is that the further in you integrate the rabbinic system, the more sexist your denomination becomes. Um, now, I think that's a it's in a sort of essentialist way of looking at this thing, but it's it's hard to ignore that on the one hand you have the so-called non-halachic movements, the reform and the reconstructionist, although the reconstructionist you could argue is somewhat halachic in, in a way, but but it's these are the non-halachic movements, they don't have this problem. Conservative and Orthodox Judaism, halachic movements, they have this problem in spades. Am I right? Am I wrong? What do you guys think about that? Of course you're right, but you should come off the ledge anyway. Uh, it's <laughs> any movement, the more authentically historical you get within any structure that starts with it, uh, is going to be more sexist because as you, well, more patriarchal because as you, as you go back in history, society was patriarchal and this is by nature a movement that is carrying on the traditions of the past. And so the closer you get to the past, the closer you're going to get to the norms and the mores of the past, patriarchal. Um, I don't think that... I think that that means that we have a choice. We can either embrace movements that claim less allegiance and fidelity to the traditions of the past, and you'll get all the equality and egalitarianism you want. What you won't get to do is say, we're continuing 
as that other movement, as traditional Judaism, but poof, we're equal. You can't do it that way. Or you stay within the traditional structure, but then you're going to have to reckon with some of the traces, many of the traces of the patriarchal and in many other respects, uh, socially backward ways that society who founded, who carried those traditions earlier, uh, used to be. And it's just, it's, it, it, I think it's a choice that many people, enlightened, liberal, non-sexist people, are willing to make in both directions. Many people who have not a, not a sexist or patriarchal bone in their bodies uh, nevertheless choose to stay within something like modern Orthodox Judaism uh, or traditional conservative Judaism, halachic Judaism, because they want to make that they want to make that compromise between having all the all the the, 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 the secular values they have today, but staying within a structure that's carrying on a three thousand year old tradition. And so, you make compromises. You end up in a movement, in a movement that will have traces. Uh, it doesn't endorse those, but it'll have traces of patriarchal norms and other kinds of backward norms. Of earlier, of earlier versions. It's not endorsing those norms, but it has to, by virtue of, 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 of claiming a continuity, of being continuous with those traditions, it has to inherit some of their values and mores and practices. Um, but what these people are doing, and some of them very brave, is trying to get these movements while staying as those traditional movements to change, and it's very exciting and it's very interesting, and it's not a problem that they haven't licked the, they haven't, they haven't rested themselves of all the traces of rabbinic Judaism because they don't want to not be rabbinic Judaism anymore. What they want to do is make rabbinic Judaism evolve, and evol- evolution always takes a short time. Of course, these people know if they want to go to a totally different structure and be completely equal, they have no problem. No, no one's, there's no, no one's barring them from leaving these traditional movements. It's just they want to have their cake and eat it too, and I think they ought to. They want to have their traditional cake and eat their egalitarianism too. And it's look, usually you, you can't have something be completely historically authentic, but in every other respect reflect all the values that contemporary norms project. You can't do that. So what you so and that's perfectly fine uh, if we're talking about a system like Judaism, where if you want to have just your contemporary values, you can go somewhere else. But if you want to have your cake and eat to have your have your knish and eat your egalitarianism. Uh, you're going to have to be in a movement that is compromised from one, from both angles. Not quite as traditional as it might otherwise be. Not quite as egalitarian as it might otherwise be. This is not a problem. This is just the situation. This is just what happens if you want to have liberal or open or feminist orthodoxy. It's not going to be completely feminist because it's orthodoxy. That's not a source of, that's not anything depressing. These people all have the rights in the rest of society and even within those communities to otherwise be equal. They just want to have a 3,000-year-old tradition and they want to be continuing continuing it. I want to reframe this as a Sorry. problem <laughs> and then okay. and then hear what Rabbi Z has to say about uh-huh. this. But I, I do think it's a problem if you are also making claims about the spiritual truths in this tradition because you're right. If all you want to do is uh, maintain some sort of historical connection or historical authenticity, in quotes, um, then yeah, that's that's your choice, and you, you can go one way, you can go the other way. The problem enters into it when you make the claim that there is spiritual value to this tradition, because then, at that point, you need to put a wedge um, between 
backwards patriarchal values and eternal spiritual truths. And th- this, is, this is actually a problem. Um, this becomes a problem, especially if, for the Orthodox, but anyone who wants to maintain a connection to the historicity of this tradition, because separating out the chaff from the wheat becomes incredibly difficult. Who's to say that the backwards, your backwards patriarchal norms aren't someone else's eternal spiritual truths. And, and with that, I, I, I'd like to hear what Rabbi Z has to say about this. So, you know, in, in listening to the two of you, um, so something that, you know, resonates, which is, right, we're all Jews by choice, right? So with that in mind, we get to make a lot of choices, the community you want to affiliate with and when it's it's not simple because right when you affiliate there are certain affiliations that people make assumptions about you right when you walk into an orthodox community and you're sitting on either side of the machitza there's a lot of assumptions made you know from who's sitting in those seats even if we don't know them right but certain assumptions are made and certain assumptions are made in in all the communities so i think that you know i think that we have to understand that and we have to acknowledge that and honor that that you know that each of those communities like it or not assumptions are made right and when we meet those people up front and uh, you know personal we might find out that they're totally different but by the fact that they affiliate we make certain c- certain assumptions the other thing i want to say is that the rabbis on certain things were really 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 creative that's why i love rabbinic tradition cuz they were when they wanted to they created amazing innovations by rereading the torah text by defining it in other ways. And I'm just saying, I feel like both the, in the conservative and in the Orthodox community, we kind of lost our wind, our balls, our whatever, right? Because we don't do that, right? To really think about creating, right, innovative change, the way that they created change, right? Because, right, if we were thinking about like the kind of society, whatever, going from, you know, temple-based, um, sacrifice-based, you know, hierarchical, patriarchal, whatever it was, to, you know, the particular um, details of the conversation that happened. Like, there was never a Ben Sora even though it's clear that it's from the Torah, right? And there was, you know, and, and we can think about other places, right? I mean, you know, the Tosafot gave us a, a, a catch for agunot, right? Right, that there, you you know, you might not like that, you know, you are going to call your relationship, you know, be'ilad znut, but hey, I would rather do that and unchain the women, right? But again, who's, who's like really confronting that and saying there are things, there are traditions, so, you know, I'm just looking for lots of smarter people to really, you know, grapple with it and create those spaces that are necessary for, um, for women, for men, right? For choices, right? We live in a, like I said, you know, the reality is, you know, we started with this conversation about, uh, you know, the 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 response about making women um, chayav, you know, obligated for mitzvot. How about just breaking it down and just making everybody right? We can have the other choice, which is make nobody obligated. 
right? That's the same, that's the same part of it. Make nobody obligated. Freedom of choice. I'm a Jew by choice. What am I going to do? I'm in a Chinese restaurant anyway, picking and choosing what exactly. I don't live in Israel, so it wipes out, you know, half of the, half of the mitzvot. So here I am, like what mitzvot are really compelling to me in America, Right? And I get to choose those and I get to do them deeply and I find a community of like-minded people or not like-minded people depending on that choice to see where I'm going to have those intellectual conversations, where I'm going to create spiritual communities and be as authentic as we can be. So I agree. Uh, I, I, I mean, I mean, a lot of things you said are just beautiful. Um, I'm waiting for those creative heroes. Uh, and I think a good model is the American American constitutional tradition, which my teacher, my Talmud teacher growing up used to say whenever he would make a comparison constitution, he would always preface it with because God forbid we should ever compare the Torah to the constitution. So that disclaimer uh, uh, having, having in mind, um, the constitutional tradition that, that America started with uh, involved traces of the patriarchal norms of the society and its community that created it, including all men who created equal, instead of all people. Uh, there, were, there were people talking about equality and writing great, inspiring traditions about equality and, or, or getting this, that inspiration from other equality theorists like John Locke and like Thomas Hobbes, and, and yet they had slaves. And, and for a while, the Constitution even helped legislate uh, or helped, helped legalize segregation uh, in certain places. Um, and there were two things we could have done. We could have said, you know, fat, get rid of that. Let's start from scratch. Make a new country in, in, in the 1900s when we started to realize what was wrong with this, or in the certainly 1960s and 70s with the Warren Court. But they didn't do that. They had a way to do, as you suggested, to separate the wheat from the chaff. They said, listen, we, we are still America with that constitution, but we have to evolve the Constitution. We don't. We want it to be the Constitution, the same one, founded on the, the values. We want to be a continuation of that community. But we want to change these substantive th things because they're abominable. How do we do it? And they're, they, they, I think we had some of the kinds of creative, not early enough. Uh, if Judaism followed this model, it would be horrible. But we did have some creative thinkers, like uh, Justice Brennan, for example, and others, uh, uh, in the Supreme Court over the years, Thurgood Marshall, um, and others come to mind, who found ways to 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 equal to make society more equal, but using the traditions, the values that inspire and that that, that that embody the spirit of the constitutional tradition, of even in the 1700s. Like they said, people, all men create equal is actually a principle that applies to uh, to people, and the spirit of that tradition really extends beyond men. And beyond whites, and and when we talk about equality, uh, whereas some people thought it actually would, uh, the Equal Protection Clause prohibits affirmative action. It actually supports affirmative action if we understand it in a more evolved way. But we don't just make up what we want and then just re reinvent the country. What we do is we say, here's how we can get the tradition of the country to evolve within structures and strictures of evolution that itself have been set by the tradition, and which is required to call this a continuation of that community, to reach the values that the creative interpreters already know uh, must be reflected in, the new, uh, in today's times. And I think that's a model for how not, not just 
conservative Judaism, even Orthodox Judaism, can change uh, in the ways that that Rabbi Z was was suggesting. The big the big scar, I think, the big stain on the Orthodox conscience today is the Agunot problem of women, because marriage uh, is one of the few areas where actual substantive rights and powers and privileges are affected by religion. So it's not just like, if you don't like that tradition, you go to another shul. This isn't a shul. This is whether you're married or not, whether you can be divorced or not. Uh, so that's an area where, where change, I think, is way overdue. Um, but there are some brave people within that community even who are looking to change it. Um, but besides that particular area where a, a social and legal institution is actually affected by religion, um, I think there are ways to change rabbinic Judaism to make it even less depressing than the picture you painted. So I'm of two minds here. Um, on the one hand, I, I very much connect with this notion that you can have you know, with the right kind of legal brilliance, you can read back into the tradition uh, newly evolved spiritual truths. Um, and if you're skilled enough, you can do it in such a way that it looks as if the tradition is actually giving them to you, um, which I think is, is, is lovely and beautiful. Um, and I, you know, I, and I think there aren't enough people thinking along those lines today uh, on the sort of more traditional side of the Jewish spectrum. It's, it's something that I lament. On the other hand, I don't see why this needs to be so hard. Um, th this is uh, sort of another side of, this is my other mind, which is at the end of the day, what all of this is about is, you know, you matter. Right. You as another individual, as another human being, um, whatever your chromosomes happen to be, matter as an equal human being. And you matter to me as a human being. Um, and I, I this is this is not something that I think is hard or difficult. It's only hard and difficult when you start adding other kinds of complicated intellectual uh, and legal edifices around it and talk of, talking about commitments to things like historical authenticity. I just don't think it's that complicated to say, enough. You know, I don't care that you have two X chromosomes and I have an XY chromosome. We should all be part of a community where we have mutual respect with so, each other. Someone here has to be the apologist for orthodoxy. And you, what you're saying is just unfair. Um, it, everybody in modern or many liberal orthodox communities are saying you matter, but that's not what the people who are who are hearing it want to hear. They also want to have Orthodox synagogues as Orthodox synagogues, claiming, continuing to claim that mantle of authenticity and still incorporate women in a way that remains authentically Orthodox. They're not offended personally that they don't think that the community in Chicago, the Lopatins community, Konevsky community, they don't think these communities are themselves expressing the values uh, except in an interpretive and objective way uh, that, are, uh, that you don't count. They're saying that you're saying that in order to remain traditional Orthodox communities with that title, uh, they are doing practices that express that a certain that women don't count, and they want both. Uh, you can easily, of course, we can say it's enough, and throw out this continuing Orthodox community thing. But that's not even what the people who are being excluded want. They know they can go to Beth Am. They don't want that. They want. This 
They want to stay in a community that not only counts them, but that goes through all the things, all the hoops that you call fancy intellectual legal edifices, so as to make it still authentically orthodox. They want to go back to their grandparents and their great-grandparents and say, I'm, I'm, I'm carrying on your community, but I'm equal. That's a taller order than just saying you count. But at what point is that just apologetics for oppression? What do you mean? At, at what point? It's 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 apologetics for oppression when the victims have no desire for it. The problem is that we're talking about a movement of women who want both. They don't want equality. They want the right to be rabbis and the right to daven and the right to count. They want the right to be rabbis I'm and not, to daven. I'm not talking about to, those women. And to count. I'm about everyone else. And to count in what will still call itself authentically an Orthodox community. That's a taller order that requires more. Of course it requires legal uh, innovation. And by the way, that legal innovation, which you paint as a kind of, um, you know, fancy intellectual acrobatics, is looked upon by other people romantically as a beautiful uh, interpretive tradition in Judaism that has gotten us so far from where we started we started that involves learning and relearning that looks at the 70 faces of the Torah that involves traditions like svara and and argument and counter argument and chavrusa. I mean this is this tradition of finding ways isn't isn't manipulation it's one of the most beautiful things that that in some ways we can lay claim to as as one of our contributions to thought in general uh, blue greenberg you say where well, there's a rabbinic will there's a halachic way right and she still doesn't count in an orthodox minion no, not, well, not. I don't know where she goes. I mean, you know, but there are within Orthodoxy. I mean, I'm not a proponent of of that at all. But at least there are places like Ten Ten, right? Yeah. Where there and are she probably people, goes there, right? Where you have uh, Orthodox minyanim, you know, that have ten men, ten women. They don't start davening or they don't count it, even though it's twenty people and it's like more than required. Um, but because they want to have a more, we'll call it equal or egalitarian, ten men, ten women, and that the women do daven from the Amud and do read from the Torah, right? It's not 100%, but they, I would say, I'm not in that movement, right? I, they would say, though, we are making, we're making headway, right? We're, we're moving a place. Now, is it the Haredi community? No, but it's this edgy, you know, playing with the, you know, playing with whatever's between, I hate continuums between orthodoxy and conservative, but that open orthodoxy, that modern, you know, Maharat is a, you know, is a response to that. The young girls at SAR and Ramaz who have decided and have gotten support to wearing, you know, tefillin. I think, you know, there are courageous people like that, women like that, pushing it. And And at the same time, I also say, just break it down but people aren't willing to do that you know their own the the communities aren't um you know uh, i want to say you know people are you know people most people have a have a ritual have a have a you know have a, a way of doing things and it's it's outside of their you know outside of their comprehension or understanding um, which brings me up to some, you know, just a challenge, Jeff, is that, you know, when I kind of go into the Orthodox community, not necessarily the open Orthodox community, but the deep Orthodox community, you know, and I see, you know, men and women who are accomplished physicians and scientists and scholars uh, in their own right, right, and they're equal in that academic playing field. And then when they go home, they are engendered 
they go into their community, they are engendered in a deep way, and I don't know how that doesn't make them crazy. I don't know either, and one of the biggest problems for me is where modern Orthodox, allegedly modern Orthodox communities replicate these engendered, uh, engendered structures, and I think that's awful. Uh, but I think the existence of modern communities where that doesn't happen uh, is proof that this is not an essential sexist problem with orthodoxy. I mean, if we want to, if we want to do that game of like taking our liberal or egalitarian contemporary values and then finding things that don't express them, and then and, you know we win, we call we call them on their sexism. You know, they're sexist. We could do that game, totally worthless game. The thing to do is to say, look, um, if orthodoxy can do it, why isn't it? If, if you can have certain 10 and 10 or liberal communities where women can count in minions, and I think, correction to Ellie, I think Blue Greenberg does participate in some of those where she can count. Why not? I, I don't know of any orthodox minion where women are counted. That's what 10 and 10 is supposed to be. We count, we're saying, I mean, if you want to talk about saying you count, that's very explicit. The whole point of 10 and 10 is to say you count. Um, I mean... It's redefining the community or the community norms, but it is, at least it's, it's acknowledging that 10 men walk in and 10 women have to be committed to walk in to make a minion. Yeah, I mean, it, it's right? much more explicit than the way that the former situation says you don't count. The former situation says you don't count, incidentally. What it's doing is carrying on a tradition which, to, read in today's eyes, uh, happens to translate in certain ways to, to imply that you don't count. But the 10 and 10 revision and reforms are quite explicitly and expressly saying you do count. And uh, the point of those is to, and again, I, I, I can't, I don't know how to stress this enough. It's, it's perfectly, if that's not enough for you, that's fine. No one's denying your freedom to choose a different practice. The only thing that you're denied uh, that's hard for people, the reason that that's hard is to, is to, is to take a traditional structure and have it both be that traditional structure and then also reflect the reforms that you want. That's always going to be hard. But to, I make, to, to combine black and white is going to always have to be great. But it's I think gonna... what all three of us agree with and what's emerging from this conversation in particular is that the essence of the rabbinic tradition is the opposite of what you would call historical authenticity. In other words, if you get down to the bottom... Okay, I'll speak for myself, but, <laughs> but I definitely think, and certainly in my more optimistic moments, I think about the rabbinic tradition as being, at its core, a revolutionary tradition, one in which you have the ability, when you notice that there's something wrong with the way you're practicing your Jewish practice, um, that you have the ability, the right, and the obligation to change that, that the that the sorts of um, the, the, the slowness of the progress around uh, the issue of feminism in the Jewish world would have been an affront to the rabbinic mind were the rabbis alive today. That if you look at the manner and agility with which they were able to turn things around um, and to reimagine the tradition, um, they would be laughing at us right now. And so, uh, on the contrary, historical authenticity be damned, that's not what rabbinic Judaism is about. That's when I'm in my optimistic uh, sort of frame of mind, that's how I, I think about I, it. I think what you just said is beautifully faithful to the historical authenticity of the rabbinic tradition. <laughs> and, 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 and so be it, and great. You know, and I think that's, that's important. I think, I think, except for that, you're absolutely right. Um, rabbinic Judaism is 
is about change, but it's not about change uh, ex nihilo. It's about and What's ex nihilo? The there's there's been a there's been feminism. There's a way that they change. Feminism right? is a consciousness that has arisen over the last 150 years, right? It's a consciousness but that even, even, has swept the world that we're still struggling well, no, 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 no to implement. No one's disagreeing with that. I'm saying what I'm saying is that it's not about change. Uh, rabbinic Judaism, the proud traditions of change, were always they're they're praised as creative because of how they were able to rechange into historically authentic documents and keep it as a historically authentic movement. Yeah, but they it's wouldn't not... have hesitated. There wouldn't have been a moment's hesitation yes, around but... something that's seen as a deep spiritual truth right. in them. There's a very likelihood that they would have changed more quickly, but there is an absolute impossibility that they would have junked the the very the extreme fanatical commitment to the ways to change that have more defined the essence of rabbinic Judaism than any of these particular innovations you're talking about. It has been more of the essence of rabbinic Judaism that we change a certain way than any of the particular kinds of changes they tended to make. That's the continuity. The continuity is the halachic process. That's the one thing that has, you know. And I don't even want to call it a, I mean, it's like, it's the midrashic process, even if it's midrash halacha or midrash agada. Right, yeah, so there's too. the there's like their technique, their literary design or the way that they read text is imaginative and wonderful and i think that we just lost that because what would have i'm imagining what you're saying ellie and i'm saying what they would have done is just added another layer they would have added right they would have added another layer and you know the first generation tanaim would have been talking to the last generation there would have been just another another set of amoraim you know, or, you know, the redactor, I don't know, somebody, right, we have to like tweak it a little bit in terms of the design, but they would have put, they would have put the overlay, and we don't do that, right? After the close of the Talmud, right, real rabbinic, right, we'll call that the authentic heart of rabbinic Judaism, what do we have after that? We have works of code, Right. We have codes. We have codes and codes and and shelot and shuvot and you know responsa literature. But we don't have, right? We don't have that midrash equality, right? But you obviously value it, and you're a rabbi, and you are value. What do I value? that process? That that value that 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 midrashic. Process. I relish in that. Yes. Yeah, and and you know, you know where we want to end up. Is there a way that you can envision if you were in charge? You know, you were suddenly the head of the Moetzik Gedolia Torah. Wow. Uh, and I'm enjoying this thought experiment. you could decide. And you could decide. Do I have your vote, Ellie? Totally. And you are told, and you are the head of the, the which is already quite an innovation, so we have to really stretch the, the stretch. Because right, I have that, uh, that XX that chromosome, thing going yeah, on. Yeah. But, but let's suppose that you, you got the job by accident. You know, you're, you know, um, <laughs> some loophole and here you are and you can render a psaac or even some male head secretly defers to you and says listen I, I gotta come up with a way I, I believe you're right Ribsy how do I come up with a way to innovate uh, orthodox practice so that and pick your pick so that get uh, women w women have just as much freedom to, to, to enter and leave uh, marriages so that uh, women can count in a minion. How would the minion thing? I think we're already seeing some of the ways that's being done. How would you do it with some of these other areas that would still uh, lay claim to the authentic tradition that you're that you're relishing? I mean, I would have to. You know, that takes a lot of. You know, <laughs> on one foot. I don't, I don't, I don't know if I can do that on 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 one foot, 
But I mean, I would go a of course back into the Talmud and and see you know where I can find that what what psukim that they were looking for right because if it's about how I read the Torah text right right and create whatever we think Torah Sheba Alpeh is that is on those pages of the Talmud and in the Midrash and things like that and um, you know I want to say I want to make claim to that you know consider the woman as another. Right or consider the woman as you know, like you know, there there was you know this this sense of of otherness and like having to put a face on them and acknowledging them, you know. And the reason why the women weren't counted was because you know the rabbis were looking at the Greco-Roman model of of you know citizenship and the males were citizens at the time. No, you know, it was rare that a woman right was uh, included. Although we know from you know certain um, findings and the archaeological, you know, archaeological findings that there were women who were head of communities in the rabbinic period, right? They have, they have that matter, you know, left over, you know, so we know that there were women who were involved. We know that women's voices were in the Talmud, you know, and had important things to say. So I would, you know, instead of making it a rarity, right, I would break it open and say, Okay, it's a rarity only because of the confines of that society. Well, you brought up America. I mean, you know, the women got a right to vote, you know, in the 20s, and she becomes a full citizen. And, you know, and if if the Talmud reflected what was going on in Babylonia at the time or their relationship between Rome, you know, as difficult that that was because those were the models that they were seeing, right? Because they weren't in Israel. I I mean, there wasn't a, they weren't, self-governed anymore so what would it look like right to be a part of that so I think that the rabbis would come in and see what America was like and saying oh yeah she leaves the house she doesn't cover her hair she doesn't do x she doesn't do y oh okay let's see if we can integrate her in some way I'm just imagining that right because they didn't deny society right we can't deny society we can't deny you know our host our host relationship, however we understand our place in America, right? Because that has to be a significant part of the conversation. It cannot be isolated to only Torah. I think that's I, that would that would that's a wonderful start. I think if if, if rabbis are listening to this, which maybe they are, um, and another join us. <laughs> I mean, another way to go that strikes me as interesting is that you talked earlier about the evolution of the concept of gender and even the breaking down of the concept that. Maybe the notion of women at the time was so essentially bound up with the particular gender roles that they had. There were no exceptions, practically. Uh, well, there were a couple of judges, but um, that we might not even read the description of Isha or, gender, or women as that, as, of that time as applying to today. In other words, we might say, listen, by women, when the Torah uses the word, or when the Talmud uses the word to... to talking to, to segregate, they're talking about people who have this very specific role of being in the house and being with children only and not being able to, to be leaders, not being able to participate in society. Those people who, who meet those criteria are also not obligated in the following way. But today, people with XXY chromosome don't have to be identified with that Hebrew label of the time because that's what they meant by women, which might not mean what we... Well, I we mean, for sure don't mean by women. We for sure don't mean by that. So that'd be another... I mean, I'm just suggesting it's another way that an innovator might... 
who wants to remain preserve the tradition might read uh, reform into the tradition. And the other thing I wanted to really say is you said that there are few judges. It's not true. It starts from the beginning. Women are very strong, right? Women are the ones who even innovate in the Torah. You have Yehuda and Tamar. You know, she challenges the leveret marriage that he promised her, and she is the one, right? Because he, he, at the end he says, she's right. Right, but that right? would mess with the ability to innovate in this particular way, because if, if you're going to define gender... Sure, I mean, I agree, but then... <laughs> no, but what I'm, I'm saying is that women have a tremendous significant role. It's just, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this about your Jewish education, and I apologize in advance, is that they deflected that. Your teachers deflected that. You went to Vayikra first. I don't know, you know, no. um, or, you know, that's the way, you know, like the guy, you know, the young men did it's that. But true, it's, actually, this particular story that you're pointing at is often skipped over because it's considered too salacious for young Orthodox right. boys to study. Yes, but I'm just saying, but it's but it's the heart of, she saw something. He'd said many. Right. And but she, again, you know, and I think that it's important that, you know, even even the Torah, the writers, whoever that is, God, people, they told those stories, right? When they wrote them down, that there was, right, they had the option, you know, even if it's HaKadosh Baruch Hu, had the option of leaving it out. Right. It's, it's written, it's, you can leave stuff out, who says, you know, or the editor, or the redactor, you know, whoever it was, you know, if you do the litany of the, you know, J.P., ED, whatever, you know, they chose to, to include it for a reason. Of course. Right? So I think that, you know, if we look at every time a woman is, you know, is noticed in, the, in all of Tanakh, right? Don't forget you have Ruth and Esther, Definitely. right? So out of five, you have two of them who are very significant in terms of telling the story and being extremely significant in the expression of Judaism Deborah. and even halachic Judaism. Um, Tamar, Deborah, oh, so many. I mean, it's, I mean, I'm just saying it's like, you know, it's, oh, like yeah, it's time is... to like really kind of just say, let's concentrate on that, see what they offered, at, you know, for those innovators and bring that innovation here, you know. It's, but the, the innovation I was suggesting, no, just to, to be clear, I, I wasn't suggesting that this. Uh, I wasn't suggesting that this is my, this is how Jewish education is taught. I was saying that if you're going to come up with this clever way of redefining the word "women" in those laws that segregate them, then we might find a way to to separate out what they meant by "women" in that time, so that it does so that it doesn't include women today. Of course, if we're going to read into what they meant by women at the time to include everything we want to say positive about women today, then this particular innovative trick isn't going to work. Uh, so it was just a legal, I was just making a legal, right, a very I'm intricate legal. Right, and saying is that we can look at precedent, but, right? So we can look at the Torah as, as precedent that, of, of defining her in a different way. Because no, she sure, has a voice. Sure, that too. Right, because the but, rabbis kind of de-voice her in a way, right? So you maybe know, we can look right, at the they, rabbi's use of gender. I, I, yeah, oh, it's okay. I, I don't want to talk past. Right, right. I, I totally yeah, I agree with that. I think that's where the Midrash comes in, right? It's the intersection. It's the rereading, right? Because what Midrash does is reread the Torah text. Sure. Right? So it's rereading the Torah text to come into the rabbinic mind to then, in our generation, to then reconstitute, to reinvent, to invigorate, to however we want to do that. I, I want to escape my... Um previous structure of being either optimistic or depressed <laughs> and and Please. say and say something uh, very simple which is um if you're serious about the jewish tradition 
if you're serious about um, being uh, committed to the beauty and the majesty of rabbinic innovation, then you need to take this seriously. And to the extent that you take it seriously, you will be relevant going forward. And to the extent that you don't take it seriously enough, you will fall into irrelevance. And I think it's not about being optimistic or pessimistic or happy or depressed. It's really a matter of being relevant. Um, you, you cannot, in the 21st century, be relevant spiritually when you have this baggage of patriarchy clouding the way you think about half of the people in your population. That's my my sort of final thought on this. And with that, I want to yeah. thank Rabbi Z for, for participating and, and being such a good sport and coming to join us on 4Qubits. Thank you. Thanks, Jeff, fun. as always. It was a great conversation. Thank you so much for participating. That's our show. If you have any questions, comments, or feedback, feel free to email it to us at 4qubitspodcast at gmail.com. Check us out on the web at www.4qubits.net and look for us in iTunes. Thanks for listening.